0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by A. R. Dobbs. The Warden by Anthony Trollope. Chapter 16 A Long Day in London the warden had to make use of all his very moderate powers of intrigue to give his son-in-law the slip and get out of barchester without being stopped on his road no schoolboy ever ran away from school with more precaution and more dread of detection no convict, slipping down from a prison wall, ever feared to see the jailer more entirely than Mr. Harding did to see his son-in-law as he drove up in the pony carriage to the railway station on the morning of his escape to London. The evening before he went, he wrote a note to the Archdeacon, explaining that he should start on the morrow on his journey, that it was his intention to see the Attorney General, if possible and to decide on his future plans in accordance with what he heard from that gentleman. He excused himself for giving Dr. Grantley no earlier notice, by stating that his resolve was very sudden, and having entrusted this note to Eleanor with the perfect, though not expressed, understanding that it was to be sent over to Plumstead Episcopi without haste, he took his departure. He also prepared and carried with him a note for Sir Abraham Haphazard, in which he stated his name, explaining that he was the defendant in the case of the Queen on behalf of the Wool Carters of Barchester v. Trustees, under the will of the late John Hiram, for so was the suit denominated, and begged the illustrious and learned gentleman to vouchsafe to him ten minutes audience at any hour on the next day. Mr. Harding calculated that for one day he was safe. His son-in-law, he had no doubt, would arrive in town by an early train, but not early enough to reach the truant, till he should have escaped from his hotel after breakfast. And could he thus manage to see the lawyer on that very day, the deed might be done before the archdeacon could interfere. On his arrival in town, the warden drove, as was his wont, to the chapter hotel and coffee-house near St. Paul's. His visits to London of late had not been frequent, but in those happy days when Harding's church music was going through the press he had often been there, and as the publisher's house was on Paternoster Row and the printer's press in Fleet Street, the chapter hotel and coffee-house had been convenient. It was a quiet, sombre, clerical house, beseeming such a man as the warden, and thus he afterwards frequented it. Had he dared, he would on this occasion have gone elsewhere, to throw the archdeacon further off the scent. But he did not know what violent steps his son-in-law might take for his recovery, if he were not found at his usual haunt, and he deemed it not prudent to make himself the object of a hunt through London. Arrived at his inn he ordered dinner, and went forth to the attorney-general's chambers. There he learnt that Sir Abraham was in court, and would not probably return that day. He would go direct from court to the house. All appointments were, as a rule, made at the chambers. The clerk could by no means promise an interview for the next day. Was able, on the other hand, to say that such an interview was, he thought, impossible, but that Sir Abraham would certainly be at the house in the course of the night, where an answer from himself might possibly be elicited. To the house Mr. Harding went, and left his note, not finding Sir Abraham there. He added a most piteous entreaty, that he might be favoured with an answer that evening, for which he would return. He then journeyed back, sadly, to the chapter coffee-house, digesting his great thoughts as best he might, in a clattering omnibus, wedged in between a wet old lady and a journeyman glazier, returning from his work with his tools in his lap. In melancholy solitude he discussed his mutton-chop and pint of port. What is there in this world more melancholy than such a dinner? A dinner, though eaten alone, in a country hotel, may be worthy of some energy. The waiter, if you are known, will make much of you. The landlord will make you a bow, and perhaps put the fish on the table. If you ring, you are attended to, and there is some life about it. A dinner at a London eating-house is also lively enough, if it have no other attraction. There is plenty of noise and stir about it, and the rapid whirl of voices and rattle of dishes disperses sadness. But a solitary dinner in an old, respectable, sombre, solid London inn, where nothing makes any noise but the old waiter's creaking shoes, where one plate slowly goes and another slowly comes without a sound where the two or three guests would as soon think of knocking each other down as of speaking, where the servants whisper, and the whole household is disturbed if an order be given above the voice, what can be more melancholy than a mutton-chop and a pint of port in such a place? Having gone through this, Mr. Harding got into another omnibus, and again returned to the house— Yes, Sir Abraham was there, and was, at that moment, on his legs, fighting eagerly for the hundred and seventh clause of the convent custody bill. Mr. Harding's note had been delivered to him, and if Mr. Harding would wait some two or three hours, Sir Abraham could be asked whether there was any answer. The house was not full, and perhaps Mr. Harding might get admittance into the stranger's gallery, which admission, with the help of five shillings, Mr. Harding was able to effect. This bill of Sir Abraham's had been read a second time, and passed into committee. A hundred and six clauses had already been discussed, and had occupied only four mornings and five evening sittings. Nine of the hundred and six clauses were passed. Fifty-five were withdrawn by consent. Fourteen had been altered so as to mean the reverse of the original proposition. Eleven had been postponed for further consideration, and seventeen had been directly negatived, the hundred and seventh ordered the bodily searching of nuns for Jesuitical symbols by aged clergymen, and was considered to be the real mainstay of the whole bill. No intention had ever existed to pass such a law as that proposed, but the government did not intend to abandon it till their object was fully attained by the discussion of this clause. It was known that it would be insisted on with terrible vehemence by Protestant Irish members, and is vehemently denounced by the Roman Catholic. And it was justly considered that no further union between the parties would be possible after such a battle. The innocent Irish fell into the trap, as they always do, and whiskey and poplins became a drug in the market. A florid-faced gentleman with a nice head of hair from the south of Ireland had succeeded in catching the speaker's eye by the time that Mr. Harding had got into the gallery, and was denouncing the proposed sacrilege, his whole face glowing with a fine theatrical frenzy. "'And this is a Christian country?' said he. Loud cheers, counter-cheers from the ministerial benches. "'Some doubt as to that.' "'from a voice below the gangway. "'No, it can be no Christian country "'in which the head of the bar, "'the legal adviser,' "'loud laughter and cheers. "'Yes, I say, "'the legal adviser of the Crown.' "'Great cheers and laughter. "'Can stand up in his seat in this house.' "'Prolonged cheers and laughter.' "'and attempt to legalize indacent assaults "'on the bodies of religious ladies!' "'Deafening cheers and laughter which were prolonged "'till the Honourable Member resumed his seat. "'When Mr. Harding had listened to this "'and much more of the same kind for about three hours, "'he returned to the door of the house "'and received back from the messenger his own note, "'with the following words scrawled in pencil on the back of it. "'To-morrow, 10 p.m., my chambers, A.H.' "'He was so far successful, but 10 p.m. "'What an hour Sir Abraham had named for a legal interview!' "'Mr. Harding felt perfectly sure that long before that "'Dr. Grantly would be in London. "'Dr. Grantly could not, however, know that this interview had been arranged,' nor could he learn it, unless he managed to get hold of Sir Abraham before that hour, and as this was very improbable, Mr. Harding determined to start from his hotel early, merely leaving word that he should dine out, and, unless luck were much against him, he might still escape the archdeacon till his return from the Attorney-General's chambers. He was at breakfast at nine— and for the twentieth time consulted his bradshaw to see at what earliest hour dr grantly could arrive from barchester as he examined the columns he was nearly petrified by the reflection that perhaps the archdeacon might come up by the night mail train his heart sank within him at the horrid idea and for a moment he felt himself dragged back to barchester without accomplishing any portion of his object then he remembered that had dr Grantly done so, he would have been in the hotel looking for him long since. "Waiter," he said timidly. The waiter approached, creaking in his shoes, but voiceless. "Did any gentleman-a clergyman-arrive here by the night mail train?" "No, sir, not one," whispered the waiter putting his mouth nearly close to the warden's ear. Mr. Harding was reassured. "'Waiter,' he said again, and the waiter creaked up again, "'If any one calls for me, I am going to dine out, and shall return about eleven o'clock.' The waiter nodded, but did not this time vouchsafe any reply, and Mr. Harding, taking up his hat, proceeded out to pass a long day in the best way he could, "'somewhere out of sight of the archdeacon. "'Bradshaw had told him twenty times "'that Dr. Grantly could not be at Paddington Station till two p.m., "'and our poor friend might therefore have trusted to the shelter of the hotel "'for some hours longer, with perfect safety. "'But he was nervous. "'There was no knowing what steps the archdeacon might take for his apprehension. "'A message by electric telegraph might desire the landlord of the hotel "'to set a watch upon him.' some letter might come which he might find himself unable to disobey. At any rate he could not feel himself secure in any place at which the archdeacon could expect to find him and at 10 a.m. he started forth to spend twelve hours in London. Mr. Harding had friends in town had he chosen to seek them but he felt that he was in no humor for ordinary calls AND HE DID NOT NOW WISH TO CONSULT WITH any one AS TO THE GREAT STEP WHICH HE HAD DETERMINED TO TAKE, AS HE HAD SAID TO HIS DAUGHTER, NO ONE KNOWS WHERE THE SHOE PINCHES BUT THE WEARER. THERE ARE SOME POINTS ON WHICH NO MAN CAN BE CONTENTED TO FOLLOW THE ADVICE OF ANOTHER, SOME OBJECTS ON WHICH A MAN CAN CONSULT HIS OWN CONSCIENCE ONLY. OUR WARDEN HAD MADE UP HIS MIND THAT IT WAS GOOD FOR HIM AT ANY COST TO GET RID OF THIS GRIEVANCE. His daughter was the only person whose concurrence appeared necessary to him, and she did concur with him most heartily. Under such circumstances he would not, if he could help it, consult any one further till advice would be useless. Should the archdeacon catch him, indeed, there would be much advice, and much consultation of a kind not to be avoided but he hoped better things, and as he felt that he could not now converse on indifferent subjects, he resolved to see no one till after his interview with the Attorney-General. He determined to take sanctuary in Westminster Abbey, so he again went thither in an omnibus, and finding that the doors were not open for morning service, he paid his tuppence, and went in as a sightseer. It occurred to him that he had no definite place of rest for the day— and that he should be absolutely worn out before his interview if he attempted to walk about from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m., so he sat himself down on a stone step and gazed up at the figure of William Pitt, who looks as if he had just entered the church for the first time in his life and was anything but pleased at finding himself there. He had been sitting unmolested about twenty minutes when the verger asked him whether he wouldn't like to walk around. Mr. Harding didn't want to walk anywhere, and declined, merely observing that he was waiting for the morning service. The verger, seeing that he was a clergyman, told him that the doors of the choir were now open, and showed him into a seat. This was a great point gained. The archdeacon would certainly not come to morning service at Westminster Abbey, even though he were in London. And here the warden could rest quietly, and, when the time came, duly say his prayers. He longed to get up from his seat and examine the music-books of the choristers, and the copy of the litany from which the service was chanted, to see how far the little details at Westminster corresponded with those at Barchester, and whether he thought his own voice would fill the church well from the Westminster presenter's seat. There would, however, be impropriety in such meddling, and he sat perfectly still, looking up at the noble roof— "'and guarding against the coming fatigues of the day. "'By degrees two or three people entered, "'the very same damp old woman "'who had nearly obliterated him in the omnibus "'or some other just like her, "'a couple of young ladies with their veils down "'and gilt crosses conspicuous on their prayer-books, "'an old man on crutches, "'a party who were seeing the abbey "'and thought they might as well hear the service "'for their tuppence, as opportunity served, and a young woman with her prayer-book done up in her handkerchief, who rushed in late and, in her hurried entry, tumbled over one of the forms, and made such a noise that every one, even the officiating minor canon, was startled, and she herself was so frightened by the echo of her own catastrophe that she was nearly thrown into fits by the panic. Mr. Harding was not much edified by the manner of the service. The minor cannon in question hurried in, somewhat late, in a surplus not in the neatest order, and was followed by a dozen choristers, who were also not as trim as they might have been. They all jostled into their places with a quick hurried step, and the service was soon commenced. Soon commenced, and soon over, for there was no music, and time was not unnecessarily lost in the chanting. On the whole, Mr. Harding was of opinion that things were managed better at Barchester, though even there he knew that there was room for improvement. It appears to us a question whether any clergyman can go through our church service with decorum, morning after morning, in an immense building, surrounded by not more than a dozen listeners. The best actors cannot act well before empty benches, and though there is, of course, a higher motive in one case than the other, Still, even the best of clergymen cannot but be influenced by their audience, and to expect that a duty should be well done under such circumstances would be to require from human nature more than human power. When the two ladies with the gilt crosses, the old man with his crutch, and the still palpitating housemaid were going, Mr. Harding found himself obliged to go, too. The verger stood in his way, and looked at him, and looked at the door, and so he went. But he returned again in a few minutes, and re-entered with another tuppence. There was no sanctuary so good for him. As he walked slowly down the nave, and then up one aisle, and then again down the nave, and up the other aisle, he tried to think gravely of the step he was about to take he was going to give up eight hundred a year voluntarily and doom himself to live for the rest of his life on about a hundred and fifty. He knew that he had hitherto failed to realize this fact as he ought to do. Could he maintain his own independence and support his daughter on a hundred and fifty pounds a year without being a burden on anyone? His son-in-law was rich but nothing could induce him to lean on his son-in-law after acting as he intended to do in direct opposition to his son-in-law's counsel. The bishop was rich, but he was about to throw away the bishop's best gift, and that in a manner to injure materially the patronage of the giver. He could neither expect nor accept anything further from the bishop there would be not only no merit but positive disgrace in giving up his wardenship if he were not prepared to meet the world without it. Yes, he must from this time forward bound all his human wishes for himself and his daughter to the poor extent of so limited an income. He knew that he had not thought sufficiently of this— that he had been carried away by enthusiasm, and had hitherto not brought home to himself the full reality of his position. He thought most about his daughter, naturally. It was true that she was engaged, and he knew enough of his proposed son-in-law to be sure that his own altered circumstances would make no obstacle to such a marriage. Nay, he was sure that the very fact of his poverty would induce Bold more anxiously to press the matter— but he disliked counting on Bold in this emergency, brought on, as it had been, by his doing. He did not like saying to himself, Bold has turned me out of my house and income, and therefore he must relieve me of my daughter. He preferred reckoning on Eleanor as the companion of his poverty and exile, as the sharer of his small income. Some modest provision for his daughter had been long since made. His life was insured for three thousand pounds, and this sum was to go to Eleanor. The archdeacon, for some years past, had paid the premium, and had secured himself by the immediate possession of a small property, which was to have gone to Mrs. Grantly after her father's death. This matter, therefore, had been taken out of the warden's hands long since, as, indeed, had all the business transactions of his family, and his anxiety was, therefore, confined to his own life-income." Yes, a hundred and fifty per annum was very small, but still it might suffice. But how was he to chant the litany at the cathedral on Sunday mornings, and get the service done at Crabtree Parva? True, Crabtree Church was not quite a mile and a half from the cathedral, but he could not be in two places at once. Crabtree was a small village, and afternoon service might suffice, but still this went against his conscience. It was not right that his parishioners should be robbed of any of their privileges on account of his poverty. He might, to be sure, make some arrangements for doing week-day service at the cathedral, but he had chanted the litany at Barchester so long, and had a conscious feeling that he did it so well, that he was unwilling to give up the duty. Thinking of such things— turning over in his own mind together small desires and grave duties, but never hesitating for a moment as to the necessity of leaving the hospital, Mr. Harding walked up and down the abbey, or sat still, meditating on the same stone step, hour after hour. One verger went, and another came, but they did not disturb him. Every now and then they crept up and looked at him, but they did so with a reverential stare, and, on the whole, Mr. Harding found his retreat well chosen. About four o'clock his comfort was disturbed by an enemy in the shape of hunger. It was necessary that he should dine, and it was clear that he could not dine in the abbey. So he left his sanctuary, not willingly, and betook himself to the neighbourhood of the Strand to look for food. His eyes had become so accustomed to the gloom of the church that they were dazed when he got out into the full light of day, and he felt confused and ashamed of himself, as though people were staring at him. He hurried along, still in dread of the archdeacon, till he came to Charing Cross, and then remembered that in one of his passages through the strand he had seen the words, Chops and Stakes, on a placard in a shop-window. He remembered the shop distinctly. It was next door to a trunk cellar's, and there was a cigar shop on the other side. He couldn't go to his hotel for dinner, which to him hitherto was the only known mode of dining in London at his own expense, and therefore he would get a steak at the shop in the Strand. Archdeacon Grantly would certainly not come to such a place for his dinner. He found the house easily, just as he had observed it, between the trunks and the cigars, he was rather daunted by the huge quantity of fish which he saw in the window. There were barrels of oysters, hecatombs of lobsters, a few tremendous-looking crabs, and a tub full of pickled salmon. Not, however, being aware of any connection between shellfish and iniquity, he entered, and modestly asked a slatternly woman, who was picking oysters out of a great watery reservoir, whether he could have a mutton chop and a potato. The woman looked somewhat surprised, but answered in the affirmative, and a slipshod girl ushered him into a long back room filled with boxes for the accommodation of parties, in one of which he took his seat. In a more miserably forlorn place he could not have found himself. The room smelt of fish and sawdust and stale tobacco smoke, with a slight taint of escaped gas everything was rough and dirty and disreputable. The cloth which they put before him was abominable. The knives and forks were bruised and hacked and filthy, and everything was impregnated with fish. He had one comfort, however. He was quite alone. There was no one there to look on his dismay, nor was it probable that any one would come to do so. It was a London supper-house. About one o'clock at night— the place would be lively enough, but at the present time his seclusion was as deep as it had been in the abbey. In about half an hour the untidy girl, not yet dressed for her evening labours, brought him his chop and potatoes, and Mr. Harding begged for a pint of sherry. He was impressed with an idea which was generally prevalent a few years since, and is not yet wholly removed from the minds of men that to order a dinner at any kind of inn, without also ordering a pint of wine for the benefit of the landlord, was a kind of fraud, not punishable, indeed, by law, but not the less abominable on that account. Mr. Harding remembered his coming poverty, and would willingly have saved his half-crown, but he thought he had no alternative, and he was soon put in possession of some horrid mixture procured from the neighbouring public-house. His chops and potatoes, however, were eatable, and having got over as best he might the disgust created by the knives and forks, he contrived to swallow his dinner. He was not much disturbed. One young man, with pale face and watery fish-like eyes, wearing his hat ominously on one side, did come in and stare at him, and ask the girl audibly enough, "'Who that old cock was?' But the annoyance went no further and the warden was left seated on his wooden bench in peace, endeavouring to distinguish the different scents arising from lobsters, oysters, and salmon. Unknowing as Mr. Harding was in the ways of London, he felt that he had somehow selected an ineligible dining-house, and that he had better leave it. It was hardly five o'clock. How was he to pass the time till ten? Five miserable hours! He was already tired, and it was impossible that he should continue walking so long. He thought of getting into an omnibus, and going out to Fulham for the sake of coming back in another. This, however, would be weary work, and as he paid his bill to the woman in the shop, he asked her if there were any place near where he could get a cup of coffee. Though she did keep a shellfish supper-house, she was very civil, and directed him to the cigar divan on the other side of the street mr Harding had not a much correcter notion of a cigar divan than he had of a London dinner house, but he was desperately in want of rest, and went as he was directed. He thought he must have made some mistake when he found himself in a cigar shop, but the man behind the counter saw immediately that he was a stranger, and understood what he wanted. "One shilling, sir, thank you, sir. Cigar, sir? Ticket for coffee, sir. You'll only have to call the waiter. Up those stairs, if you please, sir. I better take the cigar, sir. You can always give it to a friend, you know. Well, sir, thank you, sir. As you are so good, I'll smoke it myself. And so Mr. Harding ascended to the divan, with his ticket for coffee, but minus the cigar. The place seemed much more suitable to his requirements than the room in which he had dined. There was, to be sure, a strong smell of tobacco— to which he was not accustomed, but after the shell-fish the tobacco did not seem disagreeable. There were quantities of books and long rows of sofas. What on earth could be more luxurious than a sofa, a book, and a cup of coffee? An old waiter came up to him, with a couple of magazines and an evening paper. Was ever anything so civil? Would he have a cup of coffee, or would he prefer sherbet?" Sherbet! Was he absolutely in an eastern divan, with the slight addition of all the London periodicals? He had, however, an idea that sherbet should be drunk sitting cross-legged, and as he was not quite up to this, he ordered the coffee. The coffee came, and was unexceptionable. Why, this divan was a paradise. The civil old waiter suggested to him a game of chess. Though a chess player, he was not equal to this, so he declined, and putting up his weary legs on the sofa, leisurely sipped his coffee and turned over the pages of his Blackwood. He might have been so engaged for about an hour, for the old waiter enticed him to a second cup of coffee, when a musical clock began to play. Mr. Harding then closed his magazine, keeping his place with his finger, and lay, listening with closed eyes, to the clock soon the clock seemed to turn into a violoncello with piano accompaniments and mr harding began to fancy the old waiter was the bishop of barchester he was inexpressibly shocked that the bishop should have brought him his coffee with his own hands then dr grantly came in with a basket full of lobsters which he would not be induced to leave downstairs in the kitchen and then the warden couldn't quite understand why so many people would smoke in the bishop's drawing-room and so he fell fast asleep, and his dreams wandered away to his accustomed stall in Barchester Cathedral, and the twelve old men he was so soon about to leave for ever. He was fatigued, and slept soundly for some time. Some sudden stop in the musical clock woke him at length, and he jumped up with a start, surprised to find the room quite full. It had been nearly empty when his nap began." With nervous anxiety he pulled out his watch, and found that it was half-past nine. He seized his hat, and, hurrying downstairs, started at a rapid pace for Lincoln's Inn. It still wanted twenty minutes to ten, when the warden found himself at the bottom of Sir Abraham's stairs. So he walked leisurely up and down the quiet inn to cool himself. It was a beautiful evening at the end of August. He had recovered from his fatigue, his sleep and the coffee had refreshed him— and he was surprised to find that he was absolutely enjoying himself when the inn-clock struck ten. The sound was hardly over before he knocked on Sir Abraham's door, and was informed by the clerk who received him that the great man would be with him immediately. End of chapter 16